turning the world upside down. I like graduations. The commencement speeches tend to follow the same norm, though, because really, you want to do a few things in it, and it's like it's the same thing every time you listen to a commencement speech. You must commend the graduates for their accomplishments. You must inspire them to be great. And you must inspire them that their future endeavors must be such that it should change the world. And in fact, some of them were told that the future depends on you. And you determine what changes the future will expect. And so some of our great graduates, they've gone on to be spectacular people. Um, some are inventors and entrepreneurs and philanthropists, scientists, world leaders. And there, a lot of them are morally great people. And so because of the efforts of everyone, the world is, const is constantly changing. And so I've titled today's sermon, Turning the World Upside Down. This term means to greatly disrupt or change something. And so we'll focus on the one thing that has truly turned the world upside down. That's the great commission that's found in Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. And I must let you know, use your Bibles today. All right? If you have an app and you don't have your Bible, promise me to use that Bible app. And don't get distracted by the other things that may come up on your phone. But do use your Bible today. We're going to turn to Matthew 28, 16 to 20. While you're doing that, I will pray. Dear Father, I thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the ability to be used. Thank you for your promise to be with us. Thank you for the filling of your spirit. Speak to us today, I pray. Amen. Before we get into that text, I must ask, anybody here that don't like me? <laughs> so everybody here likes me, right? Yeah. I'm going to say some things and I'm going to remind you of this afterwards, that regardless of the stuff I say today, you like me still. All right? <laughs> All right, so Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. And here we find the Great Commission. The one thing Jesus said to all the disciples that resonates throughout history and into the future that we take it upon ourselves as though Jesus was speaking to us today. And so it begins. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee. There was 11 now. All right? Because Judas had already committed suicide. So there's 11 disciples. And they went to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. We're going to come back to that and some doubted later. Hold on to that thought. I want you to remember you've read it. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. What are the things we get here? One, Jesus has the authority. Because how else could he say, all authority is given to you. You have to have authority to give authority. And he has that authority over all the heavens and the earth. And so based on that authority, he can now delegate authority to other people, his disciples. 
The other thing we can see here is that he's commanding his disciples to go and make other disciples. So that's another truth in here. Disciples should make disciples. You can't be a disciple and just sit back and that's it. You gotta make disciples. And so this is the basic principle beside, behind discipleship and the spread of the gospel. The other thing we learn here is that you got to baptize these disciples. And so disciples are taught to baptize their disciples as well. And then there are some other things here. Teach them to obey everything. I've been in the Seventh-day Adventist church for most of my life. And I'll tell you, the Seventh-day Adventist church is a teaching church. There are some good things and some bad things about that. So let's talk about it. Because right away, as you get a new belief, as someone who says they wanted to, to accept Jesus, what's the first thing we do? Well, they got to know everything. All right? And so what our church has done, we've transitioned from that preaching church to a teaching church. In John 1, for you Bible readers, you'd recall on two occasions, Andrew and Philip, they followed Jesus for just one day. And what did they do? They went out and they looked. Andrew went and looked for Simon Peter. And Philip went and looked for Nathaniel. And what did they say to them? Come, we've found the Messiah. And so when Jesus met them, that's Philip and Nathaniel. He encouraged them to spend the day with him. Listening to what he had to say. And so in one day, these other two men were convinced that Jesus was the Messiah. Do you have something to say to other people? Has God been good to you? And so you have something to say that will stir someone into believing into the Jesus that you serve. We can tell if someone genuinely have experienced the stuff they speak about. I mean, at school, every now and then we get a new batch of PhD students. And so they've never taught anything in their life. And you required as a PhD student in the sciences to teach something at the school. All right? And so some of them, because it's the first time, they've already done so much of school, but they have no teaching experience. And you're required to perform the duty as a teaching assistant to a, to a professor. You're required to do it to the same level that a professor would because, I mean, you have students who are paying and they require the same effort from you as the professor. And so during our instructional meetings we have at the beginning of the year, I always tell them, um, students can tell whether you genuinely want them to succeed or not. They can tell if you're just doing this because you have to and at the end of class, well, don't bother to look for me anymore. Don't send me an email. I'm not going to correspond until I come back to the classroom. So students really know if you care about the material you're talking about. They can spot the genuine from the fakers. Same thing happens in the world. When people speak, you're either drawn to them or repulsed by them depending on whether you perceive them as genuine or fake. We do the same with preachers, right? You can tell if a preacher is connected to what he has to say. You can tell if that preacher is connected to the word of God. And he's not simply saying some empty words without adding any feeling to it. And so Jesus encouraged the people on many times to follow him. What did he do? He said, come spend time with me. Because that's what it meant to follow. And so 
generally, there was always a crowd of people following Jesus wherever he went. That experience had to be a great experience. Because I just wonder what it would be like following Jesus on a daily basis, listening to him every day. He, this wasn't done only on Sabbath. They followed Jesus every day of the week. And so if we take Jesus' soul winning principle, we should encourage new visitors to our church and others who would like to, to know Jesus to simply spend some time with him on a daily basis. As we talk about the goodness of God, we should also talk about what God has done for us, his blessings, what he has done to us, the changes he has accomplished in our lives. So it's good to share that transforming experience with others. The emphasis, however, should always be, whatever I say, I'm making disciples. We shouldn't be the ones just teaching and teaching and teaching. Our church has enough information we could teach people for years. And if we want them to get all that information before they're baptized, well, I don't know when they'll be baptized. Especially when it comes to what we should eat and drink and our health ministry. Oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah, our health ministry has lots to say. Especially when it comes to things like vegetarianism. I don't talk about the mustard. We create such a fuss about these things as though you can't be saved without this. Sometimes we just got to realize the brother or the sister just gave up tobacco and alcohol. And he's here. Don't burden him too much. And so Jesus had a few things to say. In that commission that we call the Great Commission, he said, teach them all the things I have commanded you. And so you've got to go back and see the things that Jesus taught. All right? So let's go back at that because that is the things he's commissioned us to teach. Not all the other things churches have brought in into the system. Let's go back to what Jesus said to teach the things that I said. So what are the things that Jesus said? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and love your neighbors as yourself. That's what you should teach. He also teach that you'll be blessed if you are humble, meek, merciful, have a pure heart, and love to make peace around you. He said, don't be angry. Being angry is equivalent to murder. He said, lusting, stay away from it, because it's just like adultery. He said, for those who are contemplating divorce, take the time to think about your motives. And do not enter divorce frivolously. He said to abstain from swearing. Do not hold a grudge, but love your enemies and do good things for them. He said no one should know when you are fasting or when you are giving gifts or helping somebody out. says, riches will deter you from following God. Or at least the love of riches. He did promise to bless. He says, you cannot be a fair judge if you are practicing the same thing that you are passing judgment on. 
He said, don't seek the attention of others while you are doing good. And he said, follow the words that I say, for they will be light to your soul. Those are the things God commanded that we should teach others, disciples, in order for them to be baptized. This is how simple Jesus took it. Churches now, what we've done, we've structured Bible study kits uh, that involves all the doctrines. We teach things differently than Jesus commanded. And I must emphasize here, Nowhere in Jesus' teaching did he teach prophecies. He did tell us the times or the signs of the times of the end, but he never taught those time prophecies that we emphasize so much. All right? Now, I'm not saying they're wrong. I am not condemning anything. I am just saying, and if you follow me carefully, Time prophecies cannot save you. All it does is alert you that the time of the end is near and Jesus is about to come and you should shape your lives differently. But it doesn't offer the salvation in them. Following the words and the teachings of Jesus like I just laid out, those are the ones that bring salvation. So sometimes I wonder if we need to take soul winning into a simpler process. Now, I did ask you if you're going to like me at the end of this. All right, I'm holding you to this. The church has shifted quite a bit. Let me tell you what I mean. I got baptized when I was nine. My dad got baptized that same year too, and he quit alcohol that same year. In fact, he drank the Friday night and the Saturday he got baptized and he stopped. All right? So I still remember that day. But at 14, my church recognized that they could have used me differently. I was just not an, a youth to sit and absorb. And let me tell you what my church did. Back then, they had a department that somehow we've gotten rid of. It was called the Lay Activities Department. I don't know if you remember that. But I was Lay Activities Secretary when I was 14. And in that position, you were automatically a board member. And we made decisions for lay activities in our church. I've always been impressed when young people are motivated and get involved in evangelism. We've had our Chase Wilders here, all right? But we don't have enough of them. There should, we should never lack youth who are motivated for the work of God. And if we don't have it, it means something is wrong. Okay? We got to do something to get everyone involved. So I, I would assume, and I can state here firmly, that in Ipsy we just don't do enough. There's something contagious about being in the lay activities department. You see, in that department, we taught people how to structure their messages. We trained them into how to preach and how to do Bible studies. Okay? That's what the lay activities department did. In fact, once a year, 
the conference sponsored lay activities workshops that all the, all the churches in the conference, they'd send delegates to because they realized the importance of the layman in God's church and in furthering the gospel. And so in that department, we encourage everybody. Anybody who wanted to come, we trained you. It was tough being a 14-year-old trying to train adults. But let's say I got the bug and I did my best. What do we do now? We've put aside the lay activities department and we've now created some other responsibilities and we've passed on that to other people. So our pastors and our elders are solely responsible. Now this is not this is not doctrinal. The church doesn't state this, but it appears this way. That we've passed on the responsibility of evangelism to our elders and to our pastor and to our Bible workers. And those are the only ones who seem to be authorized to do Bible studies. When that was never God's principle. It was for all of us to be involved. However, there are some of us, what, what has happened through the years, when we got rid of that department, there are some of us who've been here 10 and 20 and 30 and 40 years and we still don't feel we know enough to be an effective witness. We've robbed our membership of that responsibility. They still don't think that they could be an effective witness for Jesus. But let's go back to that text. Remember I told you? Some doubted. All right? That has always confused me. Here it is after the resurrection. The disciples are meeting Jesus and they're doubting. Probably they're doubting that he's the Messiah now. They're doubting that he really, that he's really alive. They had been following him for years. They had to know this is Jesus. They had already proclaimed him to be the Messiah before then. Why the doubt? It's been three and a half years and they're still doubting. What's even crazy too is that Jesus is telling these doubting people, go and make disciples. It's like, Jesus, you've already trained these people for three and a half years and their doubters seems as though your teaching wasn't effective. Probably you need to get a fresh slate of disciples. Doesn't Jesus know that these preachers, if they continue doubting, will be ineffective? People will soon figure out they're fake if they continue in their doubt. And so, to a doubtful bunch, Jesus makes a promise at the end of the commission I will always be with you. And so let's focus a bit on this doubting part. Because we, we fall into that trap sometimes and doubt our own abilities. And so if you turn with me to Luke chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Luke 9, 1 and 2. And it says, And he called the twelve together. And gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. This was only months after the disciples started following Jesus. It wasn't quite a year yet. And here, within months, he's sending them to preach and to heal, and to cast out demons. 
But wait, if they are doubting then, afterwards, that means they were still in doubt before that. All right? If three and a half years after, they're still in problems with their mind and they're thinking as to, is this the Messiah? Then you could imagine what their state of mind was before. And so Jesus is sending an unprepared bunch to preach and teach and heal and cast out demons. And why is he doing this? Because here's the one thing we know. When people practice something, they gain confidence. And so that's why in our, in our work situations, there's always a training period. There's a training period, and then after that, the company that can decide after the training period if they want to hire you. For teachers and preachers, you're always given a practicum. All right? And at the end of that practicum, you're evaluated whether they want to hire you or not. You see, you do not have to be good at teaching or preaching to start doing it. Because it's during the practicum process you develop your skills. And this is what Jesus was doing. He was sending an imperfect bunch to do things in a perfect way. Because that is how you gain experience. By doing something. I'm still building a case for doubting. So let's turn to Luke chapter 9, verses 37 and 40. You see, after the disciples had seen how good God was in that they were able to do everything he said, afterwards some weaknesses are going to pop up again. So Luke 9 says, Now it happened on the next day when he had come down from the mountain that a great multitude met him. Suddenly a man from the multitude cried out saying, Teacher, I implore you, look on my son. For he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth. And it departs from him and with great difficulty bruising him. So I implored your disciples to cast it out and they could not. Couple chapters before, they could and now they could not. It's quick for us to now judge the disciples. They've been failures, right? But you see, failures must always be part of the learning ex experience. You've got to fail sometime. And so as a church, we've got to know that if we're going to train disciples and put them out, there might be failures. But it's part of the learning process. You always learn what not to do the next time. Like I've always been taught this. You are improving if every mistake you make is a new one. And so we got to learn to embrace our failures and everybody else's failures. Now, I'm not talking about moral failures here, okay? I'm talking about embracing the efforts and the failures of the good efforts our members have. Embrace that, because that's how we're going to learn. Jesus did not give up on his disciples, and neither should we. Instead, he gave them another opportunity this time with a larger group, he sent out 70 of them. All right, you'll find that in Luke chapter 10. And if you find that, let's read a little bit. 
And so after these things, the Lord appointed 70 others also and sent them two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. Then he said to them, the harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest and heal the sick there and say to them, the kingdom of God has come to you. Then the 70 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan trample on servant, no, fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you the authority to trample on servants and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. And nothing shall by in any means hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. And then in an encouraging moment, Jesus turned to his disciples in verses 23 and 24 and says, Then he turned to them and said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see what you see and have not seen it, and to hear what you hear and have not heard it. As a church, we can train our people to give Bible studies, to let them conduct the Bible studies, here at the church first, under our mentorship, and then send them out. The joy of God's goodness should be only felt here in the church. No, let me say it, phrase that again. I left out a word. The joy of God's goodness should not be only felt here in the church during praise and testimony time. All members should be involved in discipleship and doing their part in the work of the gospel. It is a commission from Jesus to all of us, not just the pastor, not just the Bible worker or the elder or department leader. We all are called in the great commission to be part of this. And so the disciples were not perfect during their training. And neither should we expect perfection from our members. But the end product is what Jesus was interested in. Jesus' plan was to transform the disciples to take up the work of the gospel after he would leave them and go to heaven. And so he prepared them. He transformed them into powerful and effective leaders. The doubting would soon be eradicated. They would believe and be so bold, so much so that the world could not contain them. We see the evidence of that in Acts, 7, Acts chapter 17, verses 1 to 6. Let's find that. Acts 17, 1 through 6. What's happening here is that the apostle Paul and his traveling companion Silas are now going south. South and they're passing through Macedonia, and now they're going to end up in Thessalonica. And so now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. But the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace, and gathering a mob, set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city crying out, 
These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. So they were trying to find Paul and Silas, and when they couldn't, they took Jason instead. But it's what a reputation to have. And that's where I got the title for today's sermon. Those who have turned the world upside down have come here too. The rumors were spread that Jesus' disciples were creating a havoc. They were mistaken about what had turned the world upside down though. It wasn't that the two men, Paul and Silas, had did this. It was the gospel of Jesus that had turned the world upside down. It was Jesus who was responsible for the religious upheaval. It is in the gospel of Jesus that is able to turn this world upside down. Not the 28 fundamental beliefs, not the health message. As important and good these things are, it is the gospel of Jesus that saves, nothing else. All the other things are designed to keep us connected to Jesus and to live a healthy and more productive life. We see Peter also, another disciple, a man who Jesus told, you'll find out in Luke 22, Jesus told him, and the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. This was just before the crucifixion. But I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not, and when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Even just before Jesus' death, Peter was not converted. Non-converted Peter was able to heal and cast out demons and preach according to the authority from Jesus. Jesus himself mentioned to Peter, in case of Peter getting all cocky and arrogant you're not converted brother but when you are I got something for you to do Peter does get converted though so much so that he is bold beyond expectation the weak unconverted Peter becomes bold and converted. The power of God was able to change Peter. And so we read that in our scripture text today. Peter and John were imprisoned for the healing of a crippled man. It caused quite a ruckus in the temple. And after their defense before the Jewish leaders, they were released and told <coughs> to stop preaching about Jesus. And so our scripture text for today was in Acts 4, 23 to 31. And I'll read it one more time. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. <coughs> Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy, your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. 
and they prayed. The place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Peter. If Peter wasn't converted at that time, he would have run away. He was just arrested and threatened. At other times, more than that would happen to, to the disciples. Some of them would be beaten. Some would be crucified. Some would be slaughtered in some way. But the boldness came because of their conversion. Peter, the miracle worker, and the gospel worker and preacher for Jesus. A bold man now. He was not afraid of the political powers. He was not afraid of the religious powers. The power of the Holy Spirit filled him and he became bold. There's another instance in Peter's story. After Jesus was resurrected, while he was still on the earth for that 40 days, he had a personal conversation with Peter. In that conversation, Peter had just gone fishing. And in that conversation, Jesus asked Peter three times, Peter, you love me? Just like I asked you at the beginning of the sermon. <laughs> and Jesus' response each time, no, Peter's response was, yes, Lord, I love you. And for each of them, Jesus' response was either to feed my lambs or feed my sheep. And so I would say to you that in Peter's conversion and the boldness he took in evangelizing and spreading the gospel was, came from his love for Jesus, that he wanted to do what Jesus said and feed the sheep. He went in search of the lost people of the world. And so as we come to a close soon, um, Acts 4 verse 13 states that the people were amazed that the uneducated and the untrained Peter was this bold and confident man. So my first call is for the leaders of this church who makes decisions on the boards and in committees. Our first duty is to evangelize Ypsilanti. This is our church's community. Some of us live far away. The Ypsilanti community is the one that our church has been given. It doesn't matter Sometimes, if we have sufficient money to fund certain projects. But when it comes to evangelism, that should take our priority. Reallocate if we need to. And work by faith that God will provide for the other things that we want to accomplish. There should be no excuses. Brainstorm within the committees. Brainstorm within the board meetings and gain ideas as to how we could evangelize Ypsilanti. The year is not over yet. Don't wait till next year. We can still do some more this year. And so if your department does not have an evangelism plan, get started on it. And for you members who are not on board meetings, you're not in any committee meetings, but you come to the business meeting. Demand at your business meeting that each department say what they're doing for evangelism. And if they're not doing anything, ask for a plan for the future. That's your responsibility 
for the leaders of this church. My next call is for those of you who feel you're weak. You feel that church has left you so far in the back. You're untrained. You're unfit for service. Um, uneducated. You're not knowledgeable enough because the church made you feel that way. God's command for you also is to go and preach, make disciples, baptize, and teach. That was not only for certain members. That's for all of us. And so in an upside-down way, Jesus is saying, this is a wonderful thing. He wants uneducated people like Peter, like John, like most of the disciples to go and make a difference in the world. Because believe me, here's the thing. For those pastors who are trained to do what they do, everybody knows that's the pastor. That's what he can do. They're not impressed so much. You know who they're impressed with? The person who did not have that gift. The person who gained confidence during the process, during the experience with God, all of a sudden, this shy person who didn't want to be up front, now is so bold. That wins people to God. You are just the person God needs. Don't change anything about yourself. All he says is to come and follow me. And I will do the transformation that you can then go. But you must go. You must go. You may feel unconverted. But like Peter, he still went and saw the work of God in his life. God can use unconverted people in the gospel. God can take untrained people and make them to be effective. And so God has a way of strengthening the weak. That's the upside down thing of God's work in our lives. How he strengthens the weak. And makes them so strong and powerful. How he emboldens shy people. You are all that God needs in your life. You will amaze the world. If you just follow his command. And go. That's all you need to do. Get up and go. His spirit will give you the words to say. Don't limit God. Sometimes you may think you may say the wrong thing. But God has a way of making the other person hear the correct thing. I don't know, but it always happens. You know, for those of us who write, and for assignments, you, you write a paper and you turn it in. Sometimes it's good to have somebody edit it. Because you know sometimes there's an error there. But you're reading it over and over and you're not seeing the error. In fact, you're reading through the error as though it's the right thing that's there. When you speak and if you were to make an error working for God, he has a way of correcting it. Of letting the Holy Spirit make the individual hear the correct thing even though you've made an error in your speech. That's the one thing I know of. And so never be afraid to go and do. Go and say something. You don't have to follow the structured Bible study programs. As long as you can tell somebody what God says in his word, those simple truths, be peaceful with one another, love one another. Don't have enemies. love God that is enough you are engaged in the work of the gospel 
to those of us who are confident in our, in our preparedness for service and ministry, I want to encourage you to become a mentor to others. Our church should really be in the mentorship discipleship programs where we take someone who is new and needs some support and say, hey, come follow me. Come hang out with me sometimes. As your mentor, let me tell you the stuff I've experienced. Let me tell you about the place that I came from and where I am now. Like a big brother, big sister, mentor those who feel that though they need some mentoring help. And so we are asking those who feel comfortable in their preparedness, lead this church. You can prepare others for ministry. I would love to see we institute programs where we train people to conduct how to plan their sermons, how to conduct a Bible study. Not just give them the Bible study, but go further. This is what you need to do. This is what you need to say. Here are some tips I can give you. That sort of mentorship we can do. And so, just like Peter, Jesus is looking at you today and he's asking, do you love me? If your answer is yes, please stand with me. Because Jesus wants to tell you, go and feed my sheep. Whatever you do, just get up and go. And so, dear God, we pray today for the members here in Ypsilanti and for those who have joined us online. Whatever our stage of preparedness is with you, dear God, we know you can use us. We are confident in your presence in our lives. We are confident that we can be bold for you. Dear God, we love you. And that's all we need with the help of your spirit. Let us transform Ypsilanti and our community, dear God. We pray for a filling of your spirit here today. And help us to be effective in our witnessing. Dear God, seal our decisions today. We love you. We thank you. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.